Well, this morning we're starting a new series on, on um, Luke chapter 15, uh, the story of the prodigal son. And it's not a story that most people are unfamiliar with. In fact, it's one that's common in popular culture and used all kinds of ways. But, but I've been thinking this week about the way that each of us are shaped by stories. And some stories we hope will change, and some stories we're not sure if they can or will. And, and I was thinking about how, as a kid, I was a Cubs fan. Um, and I'm hopeful for those who stayed Cubs fans that maybe this year their story will change. Um, I'm, I don't know that I would put money on it because that might not end well for you. But, but there are all kinds of stories that shape us and, and the way that we are. We're not sure if they can change or be changed. And so I, I want to take a second, and I know um, this... We're shaped by cultural stories, and sometimes, if we're not careful, we feed into cultural stories that don't reflect the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to say something, bear with me, I I may offend you, and I apologize in advance for that. Um, I don't apologize for what I'm going to say. Um, What has burdened me the last several days, and I've been wrestling with this since probably Thursday, is is the way I see Christians responding in political spheres. I don't care which political party you line up with. I, I have friends who are followers of Jesus who vote Democrat and friends who vote Republican and, and some who have no idea what they want to vote for. Um, but where I have been appalled is the way that, that Christians have defended actions by either candidate that in no way reflect um, Christ-like values. And in that defense of those actions... Um, Often then I'll hear things like, well, this is who God wants for this. I want to be clear. Um, that sends a bad message to what it means to follow Jesus. It sends a horrible message, actually. Um, and one of the roles as pastor, and, and this is why sometimes you don't serve as pastor real long in some places, is, is to speak a prophetic word at times. And so my, my prophetic word is this, um, knock it off. It doesn't help the message of the gospel. It doesn't help the message of Jesus when we say things like that. Um, so let's be careful with the words we use in terms of politics and recognize the values of either political party do not line up with the values that the scriptures point us to in the values of God's kingdom. So, so that, all that to say, vote for who you think is the best candidate for whatever it is you're voting for, um, but let's be careful to, to put God's stamp of approval on any candidate. Um, when, when often life, things in their lives don't reflect him. So that's all I have to say about that, other than it points out the fact, as we see in political arguments, the way we hear half-truths and half-stories and stories that aren't the full deal. And so I think sometimes we believe stories that aren't full pictures. In fact, I think one of the things that often we do is we believe stories about who God is that aren't a full picture of who God is. Here's the guy I believed in as a kid. I believed in a God who said... Get your life together, act the right way, and then I'll love you. Dress the way you're supposed to dress, dress as as well as you can, and make sure you do all the right things. In fact, it was, you know, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. I mean, like, that that was the motto that I, I understood God called us to. But the more I've come to know the God of the Scriptures, the God that Jesus invites us to know, the more I find that's a really bad picture of who God is. It's a half-truth. Some of those things are, are, are not bad, but they're not a full picture of who God is. They're, they're a, a shallow, small picture of who God is. 
And so I started thinking about the way um, this plays out in our lives. And I was thinking of a story in my life when I was about 13 years old. My family went on this family vacation to the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area in Tennessee. And, and on this vacation, we went to this amusement park that I'm pretty sure is closed today for obvious reasons after I tell the story. But, but I'm pretty sure it's no longer open and no longer functioning. And so we went to this amusement park with my aunt and uncle and cousins. And, and I'm and I remember they, they let us ride like the octopus for as long as we wanted until two of the cousins threw up because it was like 10 minutes. No one should go on the octopus for 10 minutes in a row. And, and there was this one like four-sided cargo net that you climbed in and then you climbed up and around and it was just this big, probably, I think it went up about three stories and you were inside four, four-sided cargo net. And so from the outside, I'm watching my uncle and my dad and my cousins climb into this thing and, and it was an, at an angle and so... So I'm watching them step down at an angle and, and into the net, and then they start climbing. And so when it was my turn to go in, I remember thinking the net's at an angle. So when I step back for the second step, I assumed the net would still be at an angle. I was 13. I wasn't real smart. But, but it would make sense if you step on a net, it's going to straighten out. I mean, that's kind of what ladders do, like a rope ladder. Same kind of concept. So I stepped on the step. It moved. When I stepped back the second step, it wasn't there, and I fell. I did a backflip and landed on my head, and uh, my head got stuck in the net. So I'm upside down in this net, and I can't get out. And I was 13, so I wasn't strong enough to like, try to push myself out, so I like, started yelling for my dad or uncle or someone to come help me pull me out. Did I mention there were like three or four 12, 13-year-old girls sitting on a bench right by this at this time? So I waited, and, and I'm kind of freaking out. I'm sweating profusely. I mean, I'm scared to death. And I hear someone say, well, I've got a knife. And I'm yelling, no, no knife. Um, there's, by the way, there's no one working at this part of the park. I mean, it's just us. So, so as we're doing this, my, my uncle comes and gets closer and starts trying to pull me, and he can't pull me out. And so my dad starts coming to get closer. But as my dad got closer, the ropes got tighter. So I'm yelling. My uncle figures out what's going on and tells my dad to stop. So my dad's stuck. He can't do anything to help. The closer he got, the worse it was for me. So everything was running through my mind, and, and eventually someone came underneath who had a knife in their hand. I'm glad they didn't use it. And they just pushed my head up from the bottom, and I got out. And I went back through, and those girls thought I was really brave then. Um, I think they were just 12 or 13. But, but that story, here's, here's why I tell the story. Because I tell the story, I fell and I landed on my head. My brothers will swear to you that I was trying to do a backflip. To this day, they're convinced I was trying to do a backflip. I can't touch my toes. Why would I ever try to do a backflip? The other part of the story is this, that, that my dad, no matter how much he loved me, he couldn't come to me. He couldn't. The closer he got, the worse it was for me. I mean, it was like it was squeezing my head in a vice the closer he got. So see, I made a decision when I came off that step off, it's not really a step, it's a rope. When I fell off the rope, my dad couldn't come and help me, no matter how much he wanted to. You see, I think sometimes this is where we've missed the picture of who God is. My dad loved me enough to know that if he came to me, he was going to actually hurt me. And sometimes we miss that God loves us enough that he lets us go where we want to go, and frankly, that scares me to death. That somehow God loves us enough that he lets us go where we want to go. And I started thinking about this half-truth picture. My brothers still swear to you I was doing a backflip. I wasn't. It's my story. They're wrong. 
But I was thinking about other stories in our lives that we believe and we think about that, that we don't know the whole story, the whole truth, and it leads us into wrong directions. So my kids are on a kick right now where they're watching The Lion King all the time. And I started thinking about even in The Lion King, Simba assumes he killed his dad. It's the wrong story. It's not the true story. His uncle killed his dad, but he, he doesn't know that. And so he lives much of his life believing that he's the reason his father is dead. But I think we do this in our lives in all kinds of ways. We, we believe in stories that shape us in wrong pictures. They create wrong pictures of, of who God is. And in fact, one of the greatest things Jesus came to do was to reshape and reformat our understanding of who God is. The first century world had a messed up view of God. In fact, I think the 21st century has a messed up view of who God actually is. What we find in this story of the prodigal is we get a, bit, we get a glimpse of who God actually is and not one of the stories that we make up about him. The story is known as the prodigal son, or more appropriately be the prodigal sons, plural. Or maybe the prodigal father, or as Timothy Keller calls it, the prodigal God. The word prodigal doesn't mean wayward or wanderer. What the word prodigal means is recklessly spendthrift, to spend until you have nothing left. It's rec- recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. That's what the word prodigal means. The story is one that gives us a clear picture of who God is. And so we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 15. I'll invite you to stand with me as we read from Luke 15, beginning with verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11 says this. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got, a hold, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This story begins with some words that we often gloss over. So the father has two sons. And sometimes if we're not careful, we miss that this is a telling of two sons to two groups of people. Jesus is telling the story, and there are two groups nearby. One, the tax collectors and the sinners, and they'd be known as the younger son. The other group are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they're the older brothers. Probably for us, what would be helpful is they're the church people, if you want to think of it in those terms. As we'll see over the next three weeks, this really kind of paints a new picture for us of what God looks like, and, and I hope we don't miss who God really is, because I think so often we do. Each of these next three weeks, we're going to look at, put ourselves in the shoes of the younger brother, of the older brother, and then see how that shapes our understanding of who the father is. As I was studying for this week's message, I came across a couple lines I wanted to share today, because I thought they were fitting for us, and I, I frankly can't get them out of my mind, so I just want to share them with you. Here's what, G, here's what Timothy Keller writes about um, this story. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches. Even our most avant-garde ones would tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we like to think. I'm going to read those last two lines again. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. My personal conviction is that too often I've been the older brother. I've said, well, I've been here longer. I've given more. Whether it's time or money, it doesn't matter. I've done more. I should have more say. I, I, I've already been doing this. And if we're honest, many of us have found ourselves in the shoes of the older brother. But what if, what if we begin to see this story differently? What if we begin to see our lives differently? What if we begin to live into a picture, an image, in which we were less the younger brother and less the older brother, and we began to be somewhere in the middle that God actually calls us to live? And so I've been asking myself this question, and I'm going to ask it to you and I. It's this, um, because younger brothers are attracted to Jesus, are they attracted to you and I? Because younger brothers are attracted to Jesus, are they attracted to you and I? Now think about that over these next three weeks, and today I want to look at the story of the younger son. And so the story begins with this picture, this image of a father and his two sons. And the younger son comes to the father and says, hey, hey, dad, um, hey, I know you love me and all. I know you care about me. I know you, you, you know, provide clothes for me and food. And, and I know um, you're not really that old yet, but, and I know someday I get one-third of your estate because two-thirds goes to my older brother because the older one is supposed to take care of the family. So I don't get as much. I, I get that. I'm cool with that. Um, but can I have my inheritance now? And at first we're like, well, that doesn't sound so horrific, except what it meant in that day. It basically meant, Dad, you're dead to me. I think you're worthless. 
I don't really care about you. I don't care if you care about me. I don't care what this means for you publicly. I, I don't really care. I want my money, and I want to go. And the response of the father isn't probably my response to my son. My response to my son would be, no, you'll have to wait till I die. That isn't this father's response, because there's something about this father that loved his child enough to say, I love you enough to let you go where you want to go. Even if your decisions are going to lead you to destruction, I love you. And I got a feeling it was with a heavy heart that the father said, fine. And he sold one-third of his property. And he gave his son all the proceeds and said, here you are. This is your inheritance. And the son basically said, well, I'm, I wish you were dead, but, but now I guess you are kind of dead to me, so I'm out of here. And off he went. The son took off, and he lived however he wanted to live, and he lived wildly, whatever that looks like, and you can put it whatever you want in to describe that. But the son wouldn't live how he wanted to live, and at the end of that, he finds himself broke. And a famine came into the land, and so he's got to get a job, and he probably has never really worked outside of his own home ever in his life because he was pretty wealthy for a short time. He ends up at this pig farmer's house. His job is to bring the slop to the pigs, and and for a good Jewish boy to work with pigs, says he was desperate. This desperate young man is feeding pigs and finds finds himself in the mud. He says, man, the servants at my father's house have it better than this. I don't really deserve to be called his son anymore from what I did, but, but at least if I went home and I could be a, be a servant, they, they at least eat well enough. They at least eat enough food that they're not starving all the time. Just go back and apologize to my father and hope, pray. Even though I treated him in a way that no son should ever treat a father, maybe, maybe he'll just let me stay here and work. So the son turns and he starts heading home. Scripture says, as he was still a long way off, the father saw him. When he saw him, he didn't do what what would have been appropriate in that day. A a man in that day, a dignified man, a man who would have been someone who would have been a landowner, someone who would have been wealthy, someone who would have been a patriarch in that community, would have never run ever. Kids ran, maybe women occasionally, but no men. It was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of, sign of impoverishment. It was a sign of, of undignified living and a culture that valued this kind of patriarchal system. It would have been something no father would have done. And in case you are curious, that's when they wore like the long men dresses, like robes that were long down to their ankles. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen like a woman in a long dress. They can't run in those. It's funny when they try. I mean, like that's so, so in order to run, he would have had to hike up his robe. So this dignified father, this landowner, didn't care what others think. He hiked up his robe and he took off running for his son. And when he gets to his son, he doesn't say, you good-for-nothing, ungrateful kid, which is true. But instead, as the son tries to get this apology out, and we probably shouldn't miss the apology. But we see a father who desperately loves his son. He runs to him, and he wraps his arms around him, and he gives him a kiss, and he says, oh, I'm so glad you're home. 
he yells to one of the other servants, he says, go, go get my best robe. Go get my ring to signify to all that this is my son. Go, go get, get that ring and bring it here. Get him some new sandals. Take care of him. And, and that fattened calf that we're saving for some great celebration, go slaughter it and invite the whole town to come to celebrate because my son who was lost is now home. My son who was dead, or so I thought, was gone. He now has a life and he's home and he's mine again and he's loved. Go prepare a feast because we're going to have a party because who, he who was lost has been found and he's back. And the son tries to, to, to apologize, but the father basically cuts him off. I mean, this... The scene is an inspiration for all kinds of stories. There are movies used. This is the backdrop. There's pieces of art made. In fact, one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings is the, the prodigal son, the younger son. And we're going to look at it right here, I think. I couldn't afford to buy it, so I thought we'd just show a picture of it instead. This painting of a father coming to a son in the most undignified way. In fact, the father, when he would come to the son in this way, would have lost the respect of the community. But what the father said is, I don't care how undignified I look. I want to make sure my son knows that I love him. I want to make sure my son knows that he is still my son, that he's always welcome in this home. I want to make sure he knows this. I don't care what everyone else thinks. I don't care how undignified I look. This piece of Art inspired a book by an author named Henry Nowen, who's one of my favorite authors. And he writes this about Rembrandt and about this painting. Rembrandt is as much the elder son of the parable as he is the younger. When during the last years of his life, he painted both sons and returned to the prodigal son. Talking about Rembrandt, he says, he had lived a life in which neither the lostness of the younger son nor the lostness of the elder son was alien to him. Both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home. Both needed the embrace of a forgiving father. But from the story itself, as well as from Rembrandt's painting, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home. What now in Rembrandt and so many others can't grasp, and frankly what I struggle to grasp, is that God's love for us, His grace for us, is free, unmerited, unearned. There's nothing you or I can do to earn it. In this moment, this young son, all he did was turn and think about going home. And the minute he made that move, his father was looking for him and ran to him and said, You are my son, whom I love. It's not what we deserve, but it's the prodigal, it's the lavishness, it's the reckless extravagance of God. See, this is the picture of God that we sometimes don't do a very good job of telling. No wonder people don't want to be a part of churches if we don't tell them a story of a father like this. This is who the father is. Jesus comes to set the record straight on who God is. Because too often we've misconstrued and we've, we've re-paraphrased God in ways that aren't helpful. In fact, I... I I think Philip Yancey does a great job in this book, What's So Amazing About Grace, of telling a story um, about what this could look like. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. I think we probably know where that is. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose rings to in the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams. 
at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night she acts on a plan she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her True Truth group to watch the Tigers play. Because the newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss. Teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with a headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and the body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first silo signs of illness appear. It amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world, but she feels like a little girl. Lost in a cold and frightening city, she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City. When a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed warm by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. 
A deer darts across the road, and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memory speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. This is the story of who God is. This is the story of who my father is. And this is what Jesus wants us to know, that, that this can be the story of your father too. This is the heartbeat of who God is. For all the times we get it wrong, if we read this story again and again, that's where we get it right. The minute we turn and say, okay, I want to go home, whether we're at our lowest point or the highest point, the response is the same. You are my child and I love you. It's a picture of a God who loves us. It's a picture of who God is. It's a picture of a God running to us saying, you are mine. Jesus wants us to know who his father is and to live into that story. It's the words that John writes to us in his gospel in chapter 3. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We all know that, but this one matters too. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus comes as the representative of the Father to tell us who God really is, to, to invite us into a new kind of story that sets the world right. It's why we don't worry about the political story. Our hope is not found in politics. Our hope is found in Jesus. It's why when we live into this story about God's kingdom here on earth, we begin to, un begin to recognize that what Jesus tells us by his life and his death and his resurrection is this is who my Father is. He doesn't care about the Lack of dignity, being naked on a cross. He loves selflessly, sacrificially. He doesn't care about perception. God does not care. But through Jesus, we see a picture of God's love poured out for us in ways that we really can't imagine or understand. God says to us, come as you are. Come broken. Come if you have it all together. Come if you're rich. Come if you're poor. Come if you're old, come if you're young. And he wants to say to us the same words that Jesus tells in the story of the prodigal. He wants to say your father has compassion on you and he wants to put his arms around you and say, you are my child. 
Come into my home. In fact, I've prepared a whole party for you. This is what church should be like. It should be like a celebration all the time. And we live into stories where it's not. That's our fault, not God's. It's a picture of God who relentlessly pursues us, who runs after us. The moment we turn to him, he comes running and says, you are mine and I love you. And any picture we paint of God that isn't that, isn't who God really is. But God does love us enough, just like the father in the story, to let us go where we want to go. But just like the father in the story, the minute we turn to him and say, ah, I may need to say I'm sorry, I know maybe I've screwed up, or maybe I'm not even sure if I've screwed up, but, I, but if this is really who you are, then I want in. And he desperately wants to, to lavish his love upon us in extravagant and ways of the prodigal on us. See, I don't know where you are this morning. For many of us, we may be the, the older brother still, and we'll talk about that next week. Or maybe we're the younger brother and we know it already. Or maybe we're not even sure if we, which brother we are in the story. Or maybe we're somewhere in the middle. But this morning, um, this morning the invitation is the same. That, that God says to us, come as you are. That he's the father willing to be undignified and run to us and say, you're mine. I love you. You're my son. And before we can even get the words out of our mouths, he says, I know. I don't care. I know who you've been. I know what you've done. It does not matter to me. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I want to put a new robe on you and put a ring on your finger that signifies that you, this household, this inheritance, this kingdom, it's yours too. Before we can respond again, he says, we're going to have a party. So this morning, I invite the praise team to come and sing one more song this morning. And I invite everybody to stand. Um, And we don't always give opportunity for response, but today it, it seems fitting and appropriate. And so, um, in the story, the, the younger son turns and goes home. He makes an effort, he moves forward, and the father runs to him. And so, for us this morning, if maybe you feel like you want to say yes to who God really is, to the picture of a God who loves you where you are, that says, come to me, whatever your background or circumstance, your mind, then, then I would invite you to come and to step forward and, and to begin making that move. And trust that God meets us here, where we are right now. And so if that's you, I'm going to ask that you come pray in just a moment. And if you want no one to pray with you to be, leave you alone, then come to my left, your right, and you can kneel at these, what we call them, altars. or just pieces of wood with the thing you can kneel on. And if you want someone to come pray with you, then come to my right, your left. And, and as I pray and as we sing, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. There's a Father who loves you and desperately desires for you to turn to Him. For you to know that you are deeply loved, you're created with a purpose and a reason for life, and there's something of value, of great value in you, no matter what you have done or where you have been. And you're welcome into God's family. The kingdom of God has room for all. There's a party and a banquet waiting for all God's children. So as I pray and as you sing, if you'd like to come and kneel and pray, if you'd like to come say yes to the Father, and come at this time. Father, we thank you this morning for the way you continue to be with us. For the way that in these moments we sometimes miss that we can be the younger brother or the older brother, and we sometimes miss a, a dad who loves us. 
that in spite of who we are, in spite of what we have done, that our hope is found in one who wants to set the world right and, and desperately desires for us to be in right relationship. And through Jesus, we begin to see how that relationship is made right. From a Father who loves us and in the fullness of what love really means. But a Father who doesn't force us to live in any kind of particular way. He invites us to live how we want to live, but, but he hopes pleads with us to come to him. So this morning, it may be as if God is speaking to one of us that we would choose to move forward and say yes to him. Yes to a father who loves us. And this we pray in Jesus' name.